Join me on my hunt as we travel in search of stories through the wind door. This journey has been long anticipated, and we are ready. Hey listeners, Greg the Iron Podcaster here. No organic opening for this one, since we recorded on Tiger's Eye after a failed attempt to interview Spencer a couple months back. We were just trying to save time and get right into it. So let's do that. I think we covered everything that we wanted to say about Brask so far. So that brings us to some of the new details about Haka and Hrau's past that we were not privy to before. That Haka is not just the shaman to Hrau, but actually a former mate. This gives us a window into what Hrau was like before the trauma, basically. Mm. The thing is, of course, one of the things that I pointed out when I was pondering this, is that seeing Hrau through Haka's eyes... It may give us some insight into Hrau, but honestly, it tells us more about Haka himself than it does about Hrau. Mm-hmm. And you were saying that you seem to guess early on in the story that you thought that mm. there was something between the two of them. Yes, and I think that there's something in the subtext between in how... In much the same way that uh, what Haka says about Hrau says more about him than it says about her, I think that in a lot of moments early on in the story when Hrau is discussing Haka, it's difficult. You get aspects of him, and that's our introduction to him as a character, but more than anything, you're getting her feelings towards him. Mm. And there's just a lot of personal history there in the way that she discusses him in the sense or at the very least she speaks as if she has a understanding of his inner motivations more than what he might show on the surface but Mm. given how kind of frosty they have been towards one another or at the very least just kind of butting heads and are literally at odds now it just seems like okay well they're very much not aligned with one another and yet there is a familiarity there and that just kind of gets the gears turning but then once the fight in the ruins happens everything about the way that Hucker speaks towards Hrau just feels exactly like an ex who still does care about you but is just so fundamentally not getting it. Mm. It, it. The conversation is on the surface is him trying to convey his goodwill towards her. It is very much a reminder, yeah, this is why we broke up. That That's kind of the energy of that mm. fight scene. But it comes to a head when he yells in a very emotive fashion, how could you replace Carol with him? 
before we even hear who Carol is, there's just a feeling of we can kind of guess who Carol is, and then we immediately have confirmation with the story of the, what happened to Carol. So when you have those two sandwiched together, it just makes you realise Hucker was very invested in Carol too. And it almost feels like at that moment, you're kind of seeing there's a lot of reasons that Hucker feels resentment towards Miguel. These last chapters are covering that. That moment is what lies at the heart of it. It's not the only reason, but it is, if you cut away everything else, I think that is what hurts him the most and I think drives his vengeance or his crusade against Miguel the most is that how could you replace Carol and specifically why would you do it with him Mm. it's those two things coming together because he even has suggested to her maybe you should find a new mate or you can raise more cubs and Mm -hmm. he even says it was just one cub one beautiful wonderful cub and I think this energy to it, which feels even before it's explicitly stated that that is the shape of their relationship. It may not have all of the details of the silhouette filled in, but the silhouette is just very strikingly recognised as this is most likely who Haka was to Hural once upon a time. Yeah. I'm trying to remember how I felt when I f- first listened to the audio drama of Tiger's Eye. Because having gone through it all once before, and now knowing the details that I do, and then taking it a step further and going in and digging deep and going like, okay, so this is what we learn now about Haka, and then reflecting back on those earlier moments... It's hard to differentiate that from the way I felt back when I was trying to figure out Haka's deal at the mm-hmm. time. I, I suspect that the reason I didn't necessarily see a potential relationship going on there is that I was viewing Haka th- purely through the lens of being the shaman and therefore the zealot. In yes. that he feels very strongly about things that are a part of his bailiwick. And in this case, Miguel represented something literally demonic to him. And Mm -hmm. it's not hard to understand why he might feel that way, even before we have the new context of how Haka learned about humans as creatures. Mm. You know, so... Anything that was going on there could have been easily explained to my mind as I was perceiving it at the time as a holy man not being dissuaded from his path because of his belief so strongly in his god or his or, or the mm. seven in this particular case. Mm. Now, obviously, that can start to come apart a little like if I tried again, try to picture my own head back there as to how I might have considered the details 
of how things played out. First in how Crow threatens her own life in order to get Hawka to back off. That's a key moment. That's a key moment there. And it could be an indication of the fact that Hakka's zealotry only goes so far. There are lines that he is not willing to cross, and that could still then be explained by his role as a shaman, because particularly in tribal situations where you have small communities and everyone is so intricately connected to each other, it's entirely possible that not just from a practical standpoint, but also from an emotional standpoint, the shaman would be personally connected to every member of the tribe. So again, that could still be explained within the context of the tribal relationship, which is just the extended family. Yeah, and Haral multiple times says that she doesn't want to kill Haka because that would deprive the tribe of its shaman. Exactly, yeah. That would be a personal practical and emotional loss to the whole tribe not just her yeah just just to finish my thought here absolutely uh, the turning point where one can start to see as as you alluded to earlier that there is definitely more going on there than we fully understand is the fight inside the destroyed city where they have an emotional and verbal face-off before the combat actually happens. And he is trying to dissuade her from her path, and there's this conversation which is laden with meaning, that some of which is made clear and some of which is not. In this case, even though there is still that passion present in Haka that is one of his defining characteristics he still appears like he is trying to bring himself under control like there is clearly some conflict going on within him Mm. and we understand now the reasons why this is is that his relationship to her is not just about the fact that he still considers her family in terms of the larger tribal family. He still carries around unresolved emotional stuff that Mm. comes from their childhood friendship, from him taking her as a mate, and from the despair and loss both of them suffered as a result of the loss of Carol. When when I when I initially went through this, I don't think I don't think I saw this coming. Mm. Uh, and I can I can definitely appreciate it now. It also meant that I needed to unpack a little bit how I felt about all of this. Mm. One of the reasons why I wanted to, well, we're eventually going to be having um, Spencer Lieb on to discuss his experience of playing the role of Haka. Which you would now all have had a chance to hear, provided you don't mind spoilers for the rest of New Century. That said, what follows is not affected by what we did eventually learn from him, so moving on. 
when I initially wanted to interview him, it was primarily because of the protagonist that he had played along the way, Frank Butler, the nag. And obviously we would, as we got into with Matt and with Loretta, we would discuss the whole, you know, what it is to play a villain over the course of this story. And it's only now that I have dug deep into the stuff that makes up Hawkeye and is a part of our ongoing conversation about him being a protagonist in his own right rather than merely an, an antagonist, that I want to get a sense from Spencer and, you know, get a sense... How he Howard. feels about him. Yeah, how, how he feels about playing someone that isn't just a complicated villain, but is someone who's on his own journey as a part of all of this, mm. and whose journey makes sense to him right up until he has to realize where his journey has taken him, how far away from felinity is i don't know if it's the right word but i mean obviously i can't say humanity because we're talking about the quality that makes these sentient cats what they are how Um, much of himself will he lose in the process of pursuing his goals yeah exactly it's all sort of tied together with some of the stuff that we've already begun to talk about in terms of the components that make up Haka's personality. One of the notes that I I put on here early on is the frustrating paradox in terms of why it is that Haka asked Harao to be his wife. He picks three because that's apparently something that's not specifically due him as being shaman, like we never they never really talk about how familial groups are divided up into here whether someone will take a mate and have cubs with them and if they will continue to be mates or if they people will go on to have children with other members of the tribe that none of that is ever discussed yeah it's not gone into in the manner that you wouldn't necessarily go go into like what traditional or conventional conceptions of marriage are in uh, feline or human society because it just would come across quite unnaturally. I think he just sort of discusses, well, I wanted a mate who would do that. It's with an understanding of that there is a general framework at play, but this is kind of how he felt about it. So we can infer because Haka has a lot of respect for tradition and the rituals that he and his tribe inherit from previous generations that what he would follow would be not dissimilar to what has been traditionally followed Mm -hmm. but it is not pinned down because i think whether it's because uh, whether the choice in the writing was because that would be kind of boring and feel a bit forced to go through or it could just be that that's not something that we want to pin down just yet to leave it open. Yeah. And when Haka makes his choices, he chooses the former mate of Brask, 
it would appear, as his first wife, and picks another who... Oedipus! I'm sorry, what were you trying to imply there? Uh, uh, nothing. nothing. Okay. Strictly speaking, taking the mate of your teacher as your own is not the same as an Oedipal complex, although emotionally there may be some similar elements. Haka does point out Nos is much older than him. But without knowing more about Durga tribe culture, I'll just chalk it up to Haka taking responsibility for the mate that Brask would have naturally left behind. And picks another just based on an appreciation of their overall temperament, but he picks Prow specifically because she represents something that the other two do not. He, in his words, he wants someone that challenges him. And yet, having made that overt Conscious decision... Choice. Yeah, exactly. Having made that overt decision, we see him over the course of him describing his experience of being mated to her, that he is frustrated with getting exactly what he wanted. He is frustrated with the idea that, you know, Hrau doesn't really want to share him, even though it would seem to be that taking multiple mates is just a cultural thing. Then he goes on to say that he is frustrated that he is not able to understand her, that there are parts of her that appear closed off to him, and he is stymied by that. Mm. And it, it feels like a reflection of that arrogance we were talking about earlier, that because of his mindset or because of it, him being a shaman or a combination of those things, that he feels like, Yes, I want someone to challenge me, but I want to eventually decipher the challenge. He himself uses the word a couple of times, puzzle. She is the puzzle that I cannot solve. In a kind of distinct way, that is almost an objectification of her, hmm. maybe, because it's not that he necessarily views her as something that is only there for his own gratification, mm -hmm. but that he somehow either expects that by taking her as a mate, that he should have complete ownership of her to a certain extent, and that includes her mind. And that's just not a reasonable expectation of being in a relationship with everybody. There, There is someone that you are when you are with someone, but you should never expect them to not be themselves, to not be a person in and of their own right with their own values and desires that may not line up completely with yours. Hmm. That's that, that's a problematic relationship. Very much so. Now, it's not uncommon that these sort of dynamics exist in modern relationships. There are often issues where one partner wishes that through some means they can help their partner be a better version of themselves. And unfortunately, those people are often let down because people won't change unless they want to. 
in this case, the implication feels like it's not that Hakka views Harau as problematic, but that he is frustrated that she has personal boundaries, or that she has beliefs that do not line up with his. Neither of these ideas are reasonable. He wanted someone in general that was not just like him. And more importantly, everybody deserves boundaries. No one owes anyone else more than one person is willing to give. It makes me think of the myth of the woman with a ribbon around her neck. In the version of the story that I read, the woman that this man loved offered him her sexuality in all forms, married him, was mother to his children, and yet all she was willing to give was not enough for him. The mystery of the ribbon and why she would not take it off was a boundary that he was unwilling to leave be, even as she gave up so much of herself besides that. That myth is therefore a tragedy, meant to show the folly of such demands. And while the tragedy of Frau and Hakka is not directly related to such boundaries, Hakka's feelings about hers suggest parallels as to why their issues fostered such resentment when tragedy did come. Hakka's tendency to view other life forms as puzzles to be solved is an odd thing because it reads as an objectification of other people, other animals, because he uses this terminology not only with Krau, which shows that his interactions with other felines, other cats, it, he views them in this way, but he he discusses the animals that he uses his powers as a shaman to control the mm. creatures of the jungle as they're each puzzles to be solved which i think is an odd thing because it like he's using the same terminology that he would use to say this is when i take full control over something is when i've uh, solved the puzzle mm -hmm. that's not a great comparison to use but the odd thing is that that solving of the puzzle the process is oddly enough an exercise in empathy, in literally sort of trying to put yourself in their position and see what they want, what drives them. It's mm -hmm. the sleep, hunt, uh, mate, uh, jump, glide, all of these things that he solves the puzzle when he understands what it is that they want. Mm -hmm. And so a more favourable impression of Haka would say that he wants to solve Frau's puzzle because he wants to know what she wants, but I think it's to an end that is not necessarily to be able to help her achieve it by helping her achieve her own agency to do it for herself. It's because Haka has rigid conceptions of how things should be. Mm. The village needs to be this so it can be safe. This story has to mean this, and therefore Miguel is a demon. No questions asked. A shaman's role has to be this, and any idea that they aren't above the emotional day-to-day -day problems that plague everyone else, but should instead strive to be there alongside them is incorrect. He has such a template that he is trying to stick to, but Time after time, he has shown that that's not how life works. Mm. In this instance, Hacker sees each of his mates sitting in their proper place. 
his most treasured memory even says as such, I think, when he recalls a domestic setting where everyone is at peace, i.e. they're comfortably occupying the role that Hacker has allocated for them in his mind. And I don't think that this comes from a consciously malicious place of Hacker wanting to go on a power trip and exercise power and control over his tribe and immediate family in a way that feels almost like a despot or an asshole. Rather, I think he truly believes that people will be at their happiest if they feel the same fulfilment he experiences from dedicating himself to his role. The fundamental flaw in that is that it is an arrogant assertion that he believes happiness for others is defined in the same terms as he defines happiness for himself. When you originally wrote that as a part of your response to my outline, I have a good relationship with my father. I know that there are people that don't have good relationship with their parents for various reasons, but I have never been in doubt that my father has always been looking out for me and that he has been emotionally present for me. Something that we did struggle with for, it feels like, far too long, was the was this idea that if I just did things the way he thought I should, then that was a way for me to be happy. And it was a response to him constantly seeing me unhappy and being upset at not being able to always help that, always change that, always be able to give the right kind of advice or the right kind of direction uh, or the right kind of help that would make me happy. And the thing that he had to eventually accept is that simply because my experience was different from him and the things that I liked were different from his, it didn't make them lesser in any way. It didn't make them more mm. childish. Mm. It took him a while to come around to the idea that the reason I was continuing to involve myself with fantasy and science fiction or more directly social groups that are centered around role-playing games, that that was as useful and valuable a social outlet as anything else and that there was wisdom and experience as well as enjoyment to be garnered from it, that the fact that I was still doing this in my 20s and in my 30s was not an indication that I had not grown up, you know. So yeah, this this idea that uh, of the protective patriarchal figure is a relatively common one, and it even occurs in people that we generally want to like in fiction. One of the biggest examples of it in recent memory being, say, President Josiah Bartlett on the West Wing, who is a good man, who is also a flawed man, who is a, who is a Catholic, and one of the 
perennial templates for the patriarchal figure that is also kind and the benevolent, compassionate, patriarchal figure, the, the kind of person that we would want to have as our father. And yet, in his story, as a part of his exploration, we do constantly see that there are things that he is wrong about, that he has to be talked away from. In this particular case, it's not hard to associate some of those same elements to Haka as well, in terms of this is how he views himself, but as as you have said, and as the story itself has said, he views that in order to be this person, something that Brass tried to pull him away from, but he just clung to all the further, is his need to be better than everybody else, his need mm. to be above the natural weaknesses that are present in other people and therefore mm -hmm. not being able to see those same weaknesses in himself. Not understanding that in order to heal from things like, say, the loss of a child, that you have to allow yourself to be vulnerable. Instead, mm -hmm. trying to be strong for Hrau, instead of dealing with his own pain, and mm -hmm. he admits to himself as a part of telling his story that because he is not able to grieve, that he develops an unreasoning resentment of Rao for having, quote-unquote, lost Karal. And he knows it's not good, but he ends up trying to swallow that toxicity whole rather than come to terms with any of it. That's where his wrong interpretation of what it is to be a shaman, that's where it seriously starts to wound him and further bring him towards this place where he ends up seeing Miguel helpless in bed and overcome with rage at what he believes Harau has done to him, to the tribe, even before he can express that during that fight in the, in the, uh, in the city. It's a natural boiling point for him because the lines of communication between Haka and Harau are damaged and outright closed at the moment that they have that conversation where Frau essentially damns the Seven for allowing what happened to Carol to happen. Mm -hmm. And at that moment, it becomes for however many years or whatever gap of time existed between then and Miguel coming into their lives, they just, it nothing existed there. So for all of that time, Maybe like he could have done more to reopen the lines of communication, but it was it's almost like he tried it and he was going to not do anything active until Frau brought it to him. Mm. So after all this time, for the first action that she takes to bring them back together to communicate in some way is 
bringing Miguel to the village, mm. his frustration is so understandable because when I re-listen to Spencer's delivery there, it is such a... I cannot believe that after all this time that the first thing that brings us together is you doing the worst thing mm. in his mind. That it, It's what I think also makes it difficult for them to bring about a communication. If they had had a decent relationship, if they had somehow managed to talk and process their grief for Carol together, and then Raoul brought Miguel to the village, I wonder if it would have been possible for her to at the very least maintain a conversation with Hacker and for Hacker to have listened but still resolve that I understand your reasoning but I know things that I can't share with you this creature has to go. I don't know how that would have advanced but because of their pre-existing relationship that possibility for communication doesn't really go anywhere. The only time that they kind of attempt it is at the ruined city. Mm-hmm. That's what makes Hacker such a suitable antagonist for the first half of this book, because Tiger's Eye is all about the merits of communication, but Hacker is the one person that Frau cannot speak with, which mm-hmm. makes their final shared moment in the story all the more fitting, because that last exchange, that once we work our way up to there, we'll fully explore is them finally looking at one another and saying something and it overlaps they are finally meeting in the middle well okay i actually want to disagree with you there for a moment fair enough (laughs) (laughs) um like there are other things that i want to talk about in terms of we skipped through the conversation between haka and rao immediately after he brought her back to the tribe and some of the events that happened in there. In terms of Hrau being able to communicate, it's not that Haka is the only person she can't communicate with. She isn't communicating with anybody. That's that's very when, true. When when the when the story starts. She allows her father a little bit of an entry point into her life because he is who he is. Mm. It's entirely possible that since that conversation between the two of them where he is trying to encourage her to come to the funerary rites for Coral, it's entirely possible that she might not have had any meaningful conversation with anybody since that happened through that momentous conversation between the two of them, he managed to, at the very least, convince her that she should not take, she should not take her own life because Mm -hmm. it feels like we're at that point where she is so angry and she is so despairing that she is not valuing Uh, herself any further. Yeah. Which adds, a lot of extra weight to what she threatens to do mm. when he's <laughs> close to getting Miguel, and yeah. it's yeah, oh, this this book, man. <laughs> so he, at the very least, negotiates her back towards you know, if you can't see it in your way to rejoin us fully, then at the very least, do not waste your life, and instead, 
you know, devote yourself towards continuing to provide for and protect the tribe. And she is willing to go that far. And we now see, going back to the very beginning of the story, that that has basically become her life. Mm -hmm. She only lives for her work and has nothing else inside it that she is willing to allow into herself. Mm. So by disrupting the pattern, Miguel has suddenly required of her to have to communicate with others. And she hasn't been doing it for so long that she's a little rusty at it. You yes. know, she she tries her best to explain to other people. She can't even explain to herself at first why it is that Miguel is inspiring her to take the actions she does. In in this particular circumstance, Hrau is already operating at a deficit in terms of having close relationships to any of the other members of her tribe because she's like, no, no, it's fine. No, I don't want to have a conversation. Yeah, mm -hmm. okay, I'll go to heal my wounds, but then yeah. I'm going to... I'm just going to go off and do my own thing, and then I'm going to go home and sleep or not sleep, and then the next day I'm going to get back up and do it all over. Mm. I suppose I would rephrase my original statement of uh, Hako is the one person she can't talk with to more that he is, I think, representative of the biggest hurdle of mm. uh, the hardest know, one to communicate. The hardest with. one to communicate. There because are of all other... this baggage. Yeah, there's hurdles that for her to clear with everyone, and some of them are lower than others. I think that she doesn't necessarily have full, vulnerable conversations with her father. She is as open to her father as she can be, that she is capable of uh, in these years or in this space of time. But I think for Haka, he is in the quest for her to regain and sharpen her abilities to communicate. Haka is kind of like the final boss of that. <laughs> of, so that's, I think, between, between us, and I think that was a very, that was an important point to make is that Proud does have these issues that she's overcoming with everyone, not just Haka. And you're right that I what I love about the delivery and the writing is that at first, because Rao is your introduction to this world, you wonder if this is standard or typical for how all cats and jungle creatures talk. But the more you see of this world, the more you come to realise that Rao is wholly unique, that there are elements of her uh, behavior and identity that you can see in the other characters but even they remark that she is acting quite distinct from the rest of the members of her tribe I guess part of the reason why Hrau is as close to her father as she is is because he doesn't challenge her he asks that. nothing of her. Yeah, he accepts that uh, that she is her own person. That, that's one of those earlier conversations where 
Haka's like, there's there's something going on inside her that I don't understand. And when I first read that, I thought, was this suggesting that Harau is neuroatypical or something like that? Especially when, you know, Junta is saying to him, she's always been like that, and I just accept that that's the way she is. Since <laughs> then, I have more taken... Like, I don't necessarily know if there is any kind of coding inside her that suggests she is neuroatypical. Mm. Uh, it may well be that what's actually going on there is a reflection of something that never actually becomes quite textual, but something that has been part of the paratext of the New Century verse, which is that Krau is actually asexual. Um, that's a conclusion that came about later on that was more fully fleshed. So it's very likely that that commentary is not necessarily about that aspect of her. The point is, is that in terms of communication, Punta is the accepting one. And mm -hmm. it's it's everybody else that doesn't understand and feels like they need to understand in order to have a basis for being able to interact with her. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's because Haka, in stark contrast to Hunter, is the one who I think asks the most of uh, Frau. The cats that she interacts with when she brings the quagga uh, home at the beginning of the story is saying, you've done very good. You know you can slow down, so they don't necessarily broach conversation with her. Hucker is the one who is actually, as much as he is saying, I just want you to be happy, he is nevertheless saying that with all this baggage of finding yourself a purpose that's, you know, as we previously mentioned, Hucker has quite rigid conceptions of what a fulfilling life inside the tribe is or can be or should be. And I think he would ideally at this stage of the book wants Hrau to be closer to that and that is asking too much of her that's why I love the intensity of when she says how dare you mm, yeah it's only now after our conversation with Spencer that I'm able to extrapolate further in regards to Haka's behavior that his frustration with Hrau is a reflection of his own insecurity. If he can't make her happy, how can he consider himself a good mate or a good shaman? If I were to ask my own father about how he felt when I was young and unhappy, I suspect that based on past conversations after we were much older, he would agree that he felt driven both by his desire to be a good parent and by the issues he had regarding his father. That he would not make the same mistakes with me that he saw present in his own upbringing. If Haka has some level of imposter syndrome regarding his role as shaman, then his clashes with Rao would only have made him feel that more sharply. This would only pile on the baggage at play when Rao shows up with Miguel, who he would associate as the harbinger of the destruction of the tribe. The one thing I had been pondering as you were <laughs> going off a little bit earlier and you were describing Haka as the final boss, 
of this emotional conflict. Are you saying that Hawkeye is Azriel Dreamer? I knew where this was heading. I knew it was like all of the conversation of Undertale. I was like, I'm, I'm say it. I don't want to. I know where this is heading. Ah. I mean, it feels wrong to be pulling out these references here because I uh, I haven't actually finished the game, but I did watch that video that was put up in Discord recently about the uh, not just Undertale by itself, but all of the alternate universe stuff that people have created along the way, and it's kind of overwhelming. Uh, I still yeah. do want to finish the game so that I can get all of the context for myself, but I know enough now to know the shape of where some of this is going. Uh, mm. and can kind of appreciate the idea of conflict between two people that has to be resolved through communication rather than through combat. Yeah, I will say that there is a comparison between uh, Tiger's Eye and Undertale in the sense that there is the feeling that this conflict could always be resolved at any moment, by either party finally deciding I'm just going to kill the other person here. That's on the table, but there's a lot of emotional investment in the characters not wanting to have it come to that. And could also, in in theory, be resolved by the other side deciding to not fight anymore. Exactly. And I also think that there is a motivation to not kill Haka, because, and to be honest, I think that, that Hacker has a motivation to not kill Kral because of the same reason, which is because of what they mean to other people. Mm. In the same way that uh, for much of Undertale, it seems like the final destination, and it may be, is actually not Asriel, but Asgore, the mm. king of the underground, that he, and you meet all these characters who talk about their connection and what they this character means to the inhabitants of this land if you get to the end you know that if you do kill him then you are taking that away from these people Mm. and what i'm getting at is that there is this feeling that uh as we've mentioned before Violence in New Century is not taken lightly. The Mm. consequences of it are always fully explored. And I'm thankful for media, whether it's New Century or games like Undertale, that actually contextualise violence by exploring the consequences of it and confronting those consequences. It feels like there would be an interesting conversation to be had in terms of reflecting on the comparison or the difference in narrative approach between, say, Undertale and Hades. And these are both games that both of us have experienced now, but... I'm just getting started. (laughs) You've experienced Hades, I've experienced Undertale. Somewhere in the middle will be fine. Yeah, well, but it's that... This definitely goes beyond the the intent of what we're recording here today, so we should probably have that conversation elsewhere. But it will be an interesting conversation to have. Um, it will be an word that is redacted conversation to have. 
<laughs> oh, right, right. Sorry. You know, a I don't fascinating think... conversation. Fascinating is just one degree removed from interesting, but yeah, okay, fair enough. <laughs> I, I I don't think that we can ever actually eschew that particular word from our vocabulary, but at the very least, I would say that it, when we do end up using that word, it's usually as a buffer for this is the word that we're using until we can actually explain what mm. it is about it that we find so compelling inside our own brains. So, but, you know, it's a placeholder. Yeah, put it this way. Uh, in the same way that if you ever go into, like, online multiplayer on in any competitive fashion, then, like, one example would be fighting games. It's inevitable that, you know, the better you do, the more you improve over time, the better your ratio between wins and losses will be. But the nature is just by virtue of participating, there is going to be a loss at some point. That, mm. that, and once you get that, no matter how well you do, you can always make the number of wins you get bigger and the number of losses you get smaller. But it's inevitable that a few will creep in. That's what we're doing here. We're trying to get our dialogue ratio fixed where we're <laughs> minimizing the ratio of uh, interesting's presence in the conversation which is an interesting way of putting it damn it <laughs> all right well let's let's get away from the interesting then and start talking about the specific one of the things you were asking earlier was how would Haka have responded to Miguel had they not had all of that baggage going on between them. First of all, the relationship between them is kind of intrinsic yeah. to the overall story and is a mm -hmm. part of the shared journey that they are going on. So I can't, I don't think that we can actually imagine, like, it would mm. change the fundamental nature of the story in general. It wouldn't be the and, same story. And specifically the characters, is. yeah. Exactly. But the one thing that I had actually forgotten until I had gotten through my second read-through was that, yes, Haka had been introduced to the idea of humans coming through portals and causing great devastation way back when he was young and still coming up under Brask. But then there was the prophetic dream. We don't know how much time has passed in between that and... So we've got that in the middle. We've got the final confrontation between Haka and Hrau after Coral's death on one side. And then we have Hrau bringing Miguel to Durga tribe on the other side. And there's this space in between these three items, and we don't know how much time has actually passed, because one of the things that Haka covers is his ongoing training of his new apprentice after the dream has occurred. So there's definitely some kind of space in between, but the dream is fresh enough in his own mind and uses enough familiar imagery that Haka immediately sees Miguel and 
understands what he is like within a moment. Even before we get to the point where Miguel is wearing the snake rat mask, the, the mongoose mask, Haka sees Miguel with a mask in his prophetic dream. And he sees Miguel supposedly perched on Rao's shoulder, the same as Miguel would come to ride around on Rao's back. So all of this is present in this dream that is, would seem to be a foretelling of the future in some way, but it puts his mind into such a state of fear and despair and like, what could I have done to prevent this? That when we talk about the confrontation in Yamaya City, yes, there is personal stuff going on there, but I'm not certain, like when he says, how could you replace Carol with him? I'm not entirely sure that he understood until later on that there was any kind of parent-cub potential relationship going on at play. When he first sees Miguel in the bed, he merely sees it as a threat that needs to be removed and doesn't necessarily see it yet as something that is going to interpose itself into the space left behind by their dead child. I, I don't necessarily know if this is true, but when they have that first conversation... And by first conversation, I mean after Hawkeye is informed that Miguel exists. One wonders how much of it is a response to that prophetic dream and how much of it is a response to the baggage between the two of them. Because we know when they face off in Yamaya City that both of those things are at play, especially when Rao has shown herself willing to threaten to take her own life in order to protect him. That feels like very much a mother defending her cub act. But during that first conflict, it's more complicated, I guess. What is your response to some of that? So I think that when Miguel is present, uh, presented to the village, he is viewing this as just a harbinger of doom that has to be eliminated. And the connection to Frau is just that she brought him here and he has a lot of personal like resentment for that because of just this is how could it develop in this way but uh, I agree that I don't think he necessarily sees Miguel as occupying that position yet I think it is uh, once she takes him away and takes it upon herself to protect and safeguard him on a very practical level, I think that he sees that as that this is so twisted. She has uh, become this thing's guardian. And you can see that in the sense of a physical protector or, or in its other meaning of a parental figure. Mm. And 
I think that that those fears are kind of confirmed, but not necessarily expressed once she holds those fears to her own throat, that when they talk, that explodes out of him. Given how little Hucker has been able to do for Frau and his feelings of helplessness in this regard, I have to imagine that when all the pieces were pointing towards this new demon casting a spell over her to make her take him on as her new child that she would protect. Like a changeling. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That this was something that Harker could fixate on and displace his frustrations onto. Mm. Miguel may be a recent development, but in Harker's mind, there may have always been a demon on Harrow's back that he has sought to eliminate, and now he has a physical embodiment of that for him to put all of his frustrations of being unable to resolve this, because as a shaman, his duty is to the care of his people, and this is a problem that he has never solved. As much as there is a toxic resentment towards Hrau, I think that much of it is a result of his frustration with himself not being able to find a solution to this, because in his mind, it has to come to him, but there is no one else that he can confer with on this. Well, he does try, and that's that's part of one of the next subject. But I also want to intercut here that hearing you discuss about how he is redirecting his frustrations with Harau onto Miguel as a new target, I just want to put in the sound clip from uh, the Adams Family movie. You feel guilty. You displace. I do. The feelings in your brain cells, they bubble and collide. Yeah. Oh, I love those films. They, yeah. were, they were very helpful to me, actually, this year, when I think uh, when I received the news of my... And this is a complete aside, but um, when I received the news of uh, my grandfather passing away, we watched those films, and that really helped. Uh, mm. The films like that will always uh, hold a special place in my heart. In fact... Um, Something like that is actually Alex and Sharon's own work. The uh, Lord of the Rings podcast was what uh, my brother and I listened to on the train ride home on the day we received the news of my father passing away. So if there's ever a moment where it seems like I owe Alex a lot, is it's because I do. And as much as we've developed this friendship and the thing Sharon's described the sort of relationship that I think both you and I have with Alex as a sort of positive feedback loop. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, I do think that uh, there is a thing there that I can never repay without, like, wishing to ever feel like I'm eternally indebted. Mm. I I kind of am eternally indebted. (laughs) All creative works are meant on some level to entertain. Many of them also teach. Sometimes the teaching is intended, and sometimes it's incidental, thanks to whatever personal pattern matching the audience makes when taking in the work. One can hear in Alex's own words the things that he thinks are important in something directly addressing the audience, like in School of Movies. In a creative work like New Century, it's far more subjective. 
He makes an effort to say certain things concretely, but it's up to the audience to interpret these things on our own. Our creative work here at Through the Window is us trying to parse out what we value in the story, the thoughts we have as a result of our interaction with it. Some of that will be what the author intended, and some will be unexpected, often personal. More often than not, Alex's various creative works happen to be a tool that a lot of his audience ends up using to understand our own situations, to cope with them and process them. But overall, it's because that's what Alex wants to do for others. When we get to Arlington, the idea of teaching empathy is going to get thrown around a lot as being a part of the narrative. But teaching empathy isn't just the text of that story. It's the subtext to a lesser or greater extent of a lot of what Alex does, whether fiction or nonfiction. We still have to do the work, of course, but when we thank Alex or say that we owe him, it's not always about any personal relationship we have with him, which is often separate. It's because who he is comes through in his work, and we are able to engage with it on our own terms and use it to figure out our own stuff. Here, intent is everything, even if the outcome is beyond anyone's complete control. Me and Toby and a lot of other people appreciate New Century helping others is by a benevolent design, rather than just by accident. I am now aware from this conversation that my statement about how much I owe Alex means that there is a massive inherent bias to any sort of discussion I have to offer on this because of a predilection to his work. And I can't necessarily sort of argue against that except a statement of I hope you trust that this is sincere and this comes from a sincere place all of the comments I've ever said on this show but it's a fallacy to try and strive for the perfect impartial analysis because that does not and should not exist I think that any criticism has to kind of put yourself out there in the same way that the art itself puts itself out there that's kind of what we do we tell you not only about the books about the stories about the characters and offer as much analysis as we can in that regard but we tell you whoever's listening to this about ourselves so you can know us and maybe get a bit of more of a complete picture as to why this has the reaction it has because this is our reaction to the mm. material yeah. and the thing that we hope more than anything else is that this generates even if it's not outspoken even if it's not put up on a forum comment even if it's just for you to think about and keep to yourself what we hope is that you think about your reaction to the material and maybe this will help put into focus or contextualize your own feelings or maybe it's just a additional supplemental glance at your own experience with these stories. That's what I want to deliver with all of these shows is our experience with it. It's not, nor has it ever been a 
coldly detached, purely objective analysis because, frankly, those don't fucking exist. Yeah, I was going to say. And it's also true that a piece of art, a piece of work in general, can attempt to be told how to remove and not include as much of the person's inner self in the work. In the case of New Century, we can definitely infer that some of that stuff comes from inside Alex and Sharon and also from inside the lives and experiences of the other cast members as we have learned over the course of these many months interviewing them all through the window and school of movies as well occupies a more complicated place because it's not pure fiction or it's not meant to be read as pure fiction it is commentary on someone else's work and we as you say explain our reactions to it we explain our critique and the things that we like and the things that we don't like through the lens of ourselves and can choose to make ourselves more vulnerable by exposing some of the soft underbelly of why these things mean as much as they do and that's something that we're going to go even more whole hog with when we finally do the wrap-up episodes for Tiger's Eye. Yeah, uh, guys, if you thought we're being emotionally sincere in these episodes, okay, you got some stuff to look forward to. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, it's, it's really the only way that we can explain what we need to explain is by getting very personal with our own lives and how Tiger's Eye reflects on that. I didn't necessarily think that it was going to be Tiger's Eye that we did that with, but it is the opportunity for us to go deeper than we ever have before, much like um, Inception. We we need to go deeper. We need to go another layer deeper. (laughs) I did think it would be Tiger's Eye that would make us do that. Oh, oh, okay. Well, then fair enough. You you, you, you saw the future then. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, I can't predict anything. Uh, I thought that we'd be able to finish our discussion of these chapters in a single recording session. <laughs> you never thought that. No, I never thought that. No. Ten pages of, of notes beforehand. We were never going to finish this in one conversation. <laughs> As always, our conversation takes us away from the specifics of the story and onto larger topics the more ephemeral ones that are beyond one moment, one book, or even New Century or Alex's work in totality. But that also makes for a good place for us to end for this week. Based on the remaining content, I expect at least a part four, a part five, and possibly a part six to our look at these final chapters before our momentous final look at Tiger's Eye. To play us out is a bit of an odd choice, But bear with me. As happens with many songs I pick for outros, the lyrics are not always going to be a good mesh with the content. But some individual lines, plus the emotion of the song, is what I am syncing with, 
as this particular piece is about a failed relationship and the singer crying to come to terms with it, putting on a brave face even as he wallows inside with loss of pride and depression. Until next time, this is John Bellion with All Time Low. Was the knight in shining armor in your movie? Would put your lips on mine and love the aftertaste now I'm a ghost, I call your name, you look right through me You're the reason I'm alone and masturbate I've been trying to fix my pride, but that shit's broken That shit's broken That I'm at an all-time Was the prototype like three stacks on that CD? An example of the perfect candidate now. All your girlfriends say that you don't want to see me. You're the reason that I just can't concentrate. I've been trying to fix my pride, but that shit's broken. That shit's broken. That I'm at an all-time That shit's broken. That shit's broken. Lie, lie.